You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6 for a long time. So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 29. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him, He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, Stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded has been raised from the dead. When Herod himself, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and when he had him bound and put in prison, he did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John, and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to do so. 
because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Tammy. Greetings, church family. It's probably not the text that you would expect to hear the most on a Mother's Day, if I had to guess. But it is a reminder that we are here to hear from God's word. We are here to worship him. We typically here at EBF preach through books of the Bible, and we've been in uh, the Gospel of Mark together, examining the life of Jesus in this series called Jesus, the Servant King. And we want to extend a, a special Mother's Day greetings we celebrate with you today, and we recognize that for, for many, this day can be one that is marked by the collision, often, of life's uh, joys and life's sorrows. For some, this may also be compounded by the news that we've seen this week coming out of the Supreme Court, and things surround that as well. And so, one of the ways I would love to celebrate and to mark Mother's Day today is with a resource that I've really leaned into over the years by Amy Young. That's called The Wide Spectrum of, of Mothering. And I'd just love to pronounce this over, over our church as a, as, a, as a blessing of sorts, recognizing that there is a wide array, a wide expression of the ways in which God calls people to mother. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experienced loss through miscarriage, through failed adoption, we, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility fraught with pokes and prods and tears and disappointment, 
we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. To those who are foster moms, adoptive moms, mentor moms, spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and, the dis- and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who have aborted children, We remember them and you this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way that you longed for it to be. And to those who step-parent, we walk with you on those complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not yet to be, we grieve with you. To those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. And if I, if you will indulge me for a moment in including one, to those who have made an adoption plan, we admire your courage. We praise God for your choosing of life. And we remember you especially this Mother's Day. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart. And church, we have real warriors in our midst. We remember you. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for mothers everywhere. We give thanks for their love, their care, their concern, their compassion, We lift up to you, especially those who have struggled in their role as mothers, where the path has not been smooth. We pray for those whose mothers perhaps failed in any way. Lord, bring hope in the midst of their lives, whether as mothers or as children. For those relationships that are strained, God, grant reconciliation. And where there is pain, bring the healing of your gospel of grace and mercy. For those who are unable to have children, Lord, fill their hearts with your steadfast love. Bless their ongoing ministry as spiritual mothers to many. May our own hearts of love extend to all mothers everywhere through the precious name of Jesus Christ. And now, as we come to your word, Holy Spirit, would you illumine our hearts? Would you strengthen our faith? And would you cause us to live out your word in lives given to the service of your kingdom. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. I used to change your diapers. (laughs) Have you heard that phrase before? That's one I got to hear when I had the privilege of returning to my home church of all places. Got to actually preach at my home church as well. And I remember hearing that phrase Looking out, actually, for me, it was a a joyous experience to be able to look out upon that gathering and to look at people that I hold dear, some that God had used in a mighty way in my life, 
I looked out and saw Helen Majeska, who taught me how to share my faith. I saw Darren Ballard, who in sixth grade began discipling me and helped me in my, in my early formation. And yet, at the same time, there was that, that element of returning to a place that is familiar, or perhaps a place that is overly familiar with me. Have you had an exper- a similar experience to that? Maybe returning to your hometown, your home crowd. Perhaps it's even coming to faith in Jesus Christ and then returning to those that know you, maybe your checkered past <laughs> in some ways, or more specifically, are just are well acquainted with your background, find you as familiar, or know your humble beginnings. In some ways, that's what we see for Jesus here in this text at the beginning of this, this passage where he returns to his hometown of Nazareth and he faces rejection at the hands of those that are familiar with him. Issues what is probably one of his most famous proverbial sayings in Scripture, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. If you you haven't already, turn to Mark chapter 6 here, verses 1 through 29, and as we go through this, this story here this morning, we're going to encounter three instances of what we might call prophets without honor. Prophets without honor. First, Jesus. Then the disciples who he sends out powerfully in his name. And third, John the Baptist. We'll see how each ministered prophetically and yet were met by rejection. And so first, this first instance of a prophet without honor, Jesus returns to his hometown and is rejected by those most familiar with his background. Verses 1 to 6. You know, we have just witnessed Jesus' powerful authority over the wind and the waves and calming the sea, over, over the demons and just restoring the demon-possessed man possessed by a legion of demons. We have seen his powerful authority on display in healing disease and in commanding, conquering even death itself. And here he is returning to Nazareth, his childhood home, with a minuscule population and (laughs) a reputation that definitely precedes it. If you think to the beginning of John's gospel, I think when it's Nathaniel who who says, can anything good come from Nazareth? After his prophetic teaching is met with amazement there in the synagogue, Mark includes a series of six questions. And the first The first is a question of source. Where did this man, first of all, I'm struck by the fact that they don't even use his name. Where did this man get these things? The second is a question of content. What's this wisdom that has been given him? Kind of like this thought that he couldn't come up with this on his own, surely not. The third question is that of power. What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Mark has given us a sense of that as we have gone along and seen these these miracles uh, increasing one by one. The fourth is a question of background. Isn't this the carpenter? A carpenter in in the first century here was a craftsman in wood and stone. This is not, you know, I kind of maybe went down the rabbit trail here a little bit, but I don't think that this is necessarily a derogatory statement 
so much as it is just a statement of familiarity, a recognition of his humble, his humble beginnings. But closely coupled with that is the fifth question, that of birth. Isn't this Mary's son? Now, I don't know this entirely for sure, but some have suggested that they, there could be a, a tinge of shame in a, a question like this, an allusion to the fact that some in the community remembered Mary being pregnant prior to her marriage. The sixth question is that of family, and the brothers of James, Joseph, Judah, Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? John 7 gives us a window into the world of Jesus' siblings and shows that even his own brothers did not believe in him initially. To the people of Nazareth, he is the local boy, nothing special. There's no reason for him to be any different than the rest of his family. And the result is that they took offense at him. Now, this is how my mind works, I guess, but when I hear that phrase, I can't help but hear Michael Jordan in The Last Dance saying, like, and I, I took offense at that. Like, I don't know how many times he says, like, you know, you know whatever it was, whatever that little slight or something, that, you know, and I took offense at that. Well, this is more than a slight offense that was meant to help fuel an athletic performance. No, there's a lot boiled up into this, this offense. And what his hometown sees in him, it is at this point that Jesus gives that proverbial saying in verse four that reminds us of the rejection of the prophets themselves by their own people in the old, frequently in the Old Testament. It foreshadows Jesus' own rejection that will take place in Jerusalem. And it prepares us for the story that follows with John. And as a result, Jesus refuses to force his miracles on those who are hostile and skeptical. While they're amazed at his ever-increasing mighty deeds, Jesus becomes amazed. This is only the second time one of two times in the Gospels where Jesus is amazed, same word, and here he is amazed at their lack of faith. A few takeaways for us to consider just from these first opening verses, and the first is that familiarity with Jesus does not guarantee knowing who Jesus really is. You know, have you heard the expression before, familiarity breeds contempt? Does, there's a lot of questions we could ask about something like this. Does our familiarity with Jesus at times breed contempt? Are we in danger of being so familiar with him that we no longer sense his conviction or are astonished at his work? Have we become spiritually inoculated? And are we in danger at times of repeating the same mistakes as his hometown? Familiarity with Jesus does not guarantee knowing who Jesus really is. Another takeaway, Jesus knows what it means to face rejection. For the disciples accompanying him, being with Jesus meant seeing him get rejected, which was to be expected when sowing seeds of the gospel. This is something that he had prepared them for. It was continuing to prepare them for. This is actually the last time in Mark's gospel that we see Jesus 
ministering in the synagogue. It seems as though there is a, a point at which a significant break takes place with, with the establishment. And so in a similar vein, third takeaway, Jesus had complicated relationships with his family. Hmm. Not only is it most likely that Joseph had died at this point, but he was perceived, think back to chapter 3 as well, he was, Jesus was perceived as potentially bringing shame on the family. If you recall, his mother and his brothers going to where he was and trying to reel him in trying to bring him along quietly with them. If you think of chapter 3, I think verse 31, around in there. His own siblings did not believe in him initially, but God would bring about redemption there. We see his family gathering with the early believers in Acts 1.14. We see James then becoming influential in the church in Jerusalem. Jude most likely being the writer, the author of the book of Jude as well, becoming prominent in the early church. But the reality is that Jesus had complicated relationships with his family. He knows what it is like to struggle with those familial relationships. And last takeaway in in this section is Jesus does not force faith. Jesus does not demand honor and recognition He came to sow the word, think again about the parable of the soils, but he seeks a personal commitment, a choice to freely follow him. Yes, his power knows no limits, but he does not force himself on those who do not respond to him in faith. What a magnificent mystery, but a reality nonetheless that he does not force anyone into faith. Well, despite their unbelief, The work of the gospel needed to go on. And what we see next in the the next few verses in this passage is Jesus doing exactly that. Jesus sends out the 12 as heralds and prepares them for the rejection they will inevitably face. What began with discovering some of them, remember, by the lakeside, inviting them to follow him, and fish for people, appointing them, chapter 3, inviting them to be with him, chapter 3, verse 14, now moves to the next phase of the mission in sending them out with Christ's authority. And I love what Jesus does here. He sends them out two by two. Now, first of all, I can't help but think about, like, the story of Noah, and maybe it's the phase of life we're in, and our little kids, and the animals, two by two, but... I think there's more than meets the eye here, too. I couldn't help but think about, maybe this is a little pop quiz for you, but do you know what the smallest unit is in the army? It's two. Now, we could probably come up with a better term for it, battle buddy. Now, I know, I get it. It sounds a little bit like, hey, battle buddy, you know, that sort of thing, but it is so important. The smallest unit in the army is that of two, you and your battle buddy especially in a place of conflict or in a, in a hostile, hostile area, you essentially go everywhere together. And then from there, those teams of two are formed into teams and then squads, platoons, and so on and so forth. But at its root, you and the soldier alongside you is vital for mutual support, 
Sending people out with mutual support has a rich Old Testament background. If you think about Deuteronomy chapter 19, part of that also has to do with the confirming of or the, the witnessing of something that takes place it had to be confirmed by at least two witnesses. But this became Jesus' usual practice in sending out the 12, then in Luke, sending out the 72, two at a time, and it became the practice of the early church in the early missionary movements as people were sent out in at least groups of two to, plant, to raise up disciples and plant churches. Jesus gives them careful instructions in verses 8 to 9 that are actually nearly identical to what God told the people to take with them when they fled Egypt. I think part of this is to signify that there is a new exodus that is underway. Somebody greater than Moses is here. They were to travel light, much like the prophets Elijah and John the Baptist. Remember what John the Baptist wore? Provisions would come from those who respond positively to the disciples' message along the way. They were to travel light. And Jesus urges them to use one place as a base of operations until the mission in that town is complete. Rather than, I think, perhaps he anticipated the pressure or the, uh, the temptation to want to climb the social ladder, to move from one home to perhaps a higher status home. But no, he said, remain where you are. Seek people of peace and stay there till the job is done. Jesus then prepares them for instances in which they would face hostile rejection. Verse 11. And if any place will not be welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, when I, when I first hear that, I... Uh, I can't help but think of George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life who says, I'm going to shake the dust of this crummy little town off my feet. And you know what? While that's cute and maybe <laughs> it's not quite what is intended here. That's like the I'm getting out of this place, right? I'm going to see the world. No, to shake the dust off in this case meant shaking off uncleanness from one's feet treating the town as an unclean or pagan city. This served not only as a solemn legal witness to their rejection of the gospel, but it actually functions as a call to repentance as well, a call to repentance. And that's exactly what we see the disciples do. As they go, go forward obediently, they proclaim the message first modeled by John the Baptist and then Jesus himself and not only do they proclaim the gospel, but they practice the gospel. They are used by God to bring about deliverance and miraculous healing along the way. Proclaiming and practicing the gospel. Friends, by way of takeaway, Jesus invites us to be part of God's own mission. Jesus knew that the task was not his alone. And he passed on power and authority so that God's kingdom would be realized. His ministry had a multiplying effect. Our mission is an extension of Christ's work in the world and is to be carried out with urgency. We go in his name. We go preaching what he taught and working by his power. We are his representatives 
His envoys, I love the images that the New Testament uses about, for instance, our work as ambassadors, representing him to the world around us with his authority, his support, his backing. What's amazing is that he chooses to use imperfect people like the disciples. We see that time and time again in the pages of Scripture, and he chooses to use imperfect people like you and like me. Jesus invites us to be part of the mission of God. Jesus knows our deep need for companionship. Lone rangers make easy targets. Pairing up provides protection and encouragement. It, it promotes accountability. I love that image that we see in Ecclesiastes 4, for instance, where, where the writer laments the isolation, the fear-induced isolation that we can often find ourselves in alone and lifts up what it means to live and love alongside others, even culminating with that, maybe the more famous part of that passage, a three-fold, three-strand cord is not easily broken. But the reality is that we need one another. Jesus knows our need for companionship, for deep friendship, for support, accountability along the way. Jesus wants us to focus on the mission and to trust him for provision. Now, this passage does not mean that we're supposed to have a scarcity mentality, perhaps when like doing something like sending out our missionaries, thank God that this is not part of the requirements that we would say, perhaps in raising up a missionary family from EBF to, to go wherever God calls them to go. But I think more important for today is the principle the underlying principles of what Jesus is saying here. Because even later in the Gospels, he gives a different set of instructions to than the next uh, sending out. And even the, in the missionary journeys that I alluded to earlier, the provisions that they take with them there look different as well. But underlying this is that principle of traveling light. And rather than securing our own ease or being overly attached to material security, we are to look to him for all that we need. To look for people of peace around us. And yes, oh man, something that God has had to teach me over the years, to be a gracious recipient of generosity. Mm. We like to give, don't we? It's harder at times to receive that is what we're called. Jesus wants us to focus on the mission and trust him for provision. And Jesus calls us to both proclaim and practice the gospel. I could spend all of our time on this, really, but like the disciples, our mission is not just declaring the gospel, but doing the gospel as well. And just as the disciples anointed people with oil, this is a symbol, a rich symbol of God's grace and restoration. So we here as elders have the privilege of continuing that as much as James, the book of James admonishes us to do that is to pray for and anoint people who are sick. That is a humble privilege that we have. And if that's a place that you find yourself in today, please, we would love to pray over you. Well, as Christ's followers go forward with the gospel, it causes others to then speculate about who he is to the point that Herod Antipas, this this ruler of the surrounding region hears about him. 
So this third instance of a prophet without honor, we, we see John consistently speaks truth to power and is rejected to the point of losing his life. King Herod here, or Herod Antipas, was the son of Herod the Great, Tetrarch of Galilee. He was technically a governor under Rome, not a king. I wonder if a bit of this was him calling himself that. I don't know if it's a bit of like Dwight Schrute saying assistant regional manager when he's really assistant to the regional manager. I don't know exactly what's going on there, but Mark at least gives us this, uh, records him as a king even though he was a local governor. But it is striking to see the different ways that people understood the ministry of Jesus, the speculations about Jesus' identity. All of these speculations here at the beginning of these, these first few verses agree that he is some kind of prophet. And so one speculation is he is viewed as John the Baptist raised from the dead. This is, this is Herod's own view, according to verse 16. Some view him as Elijah returned. If you think about Elijah, he was closely associated with the end times hopes of the people of Israel. And the third speculation is that he is at least a prophet. The consensus even was that he is a prophet, though not sure exactly of what kind. And so it is at this point that what happens in the text is really a flashback, a flashback to the continuation of the story of John. And what we'll see too is that it bears many similarities to the story of Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah in 1 Kings 21. In fact, those stories could be read in parallel to one another. The last time we saw John, of course, was when he was imprisoned in chapter 1, verse 14. And the reason was because He had repeatedly and publicly called out Herod Antipas for breaking the law, Leviticus 18, 20, by marrying Herodias, the former wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip, divorced his own wife in order to do so and had a daughter with Herodias named Salome. Now, if you are tracking all that, great, but it's messy. What's striking is that Herod Antipas was not a Jew, but John still called out his violation of God's moral law. And as a result, Herodias nursed a grudge and sought to silent this dissent. Herod is pictured as being puzzled by John, but wanting to continue to hear him out, almost keeping him as like, a, like on a leash. But what becomes ironic is that wicked Herod's birthday becomes righteous John's death day. Mark describes the events in seven steps. You probably got a sense of this as as Tammy read through it, but first the daughter of Herodias came in and danced. The word word for girl is the same word for the girl that Jesus raised from the dead in the previous passage, maybe even of similar age. Second, the girl and her dance pleased Herod, Antipas, and his dinner guests. Third step, the girl leaves the banquet hall and consults with her mother. This, I had not really maybe paid attention to this previously, but she most likely had to leave um, excavations of, of this, uh, this structure reveal that there were two, two main um, great halls, for instance. It, it could very well be that one was for men and one was for women, but the girl leaves the banquet hall and consults with her mother. 
Fourth, Herodias asks the girl to demand the head of John the Baptist. Fifth, the girl hurries into the banquet hall demanding John's head. I think one thing that causes me to lament maybe the most in this passage, obviously John's beheading, but even also along with that is how this girl is used as a pawn in the plot. The word for platter, too, is that for a typical serving dish. She wants him served up as part of the banquet. I know it's a kind of a grotesque image. Again, probably not on your Mother's Day bingo card. But sixth, Herod Antipas was greatly distressed. Felt trapped, wanted to save face, and thought his oath more important than human life. And so seventh, John is executed by beheading. This is an egregious abuse of power. What we see is the disciples, these John's faithful disciples come and and take the body. What do we make of this? (laughs) What do we make of this story? I think there are a couple of takeaways. That is Jesus calls us, even as we go, to firmly hold to the truth. Like John, we must stand for what is right, even if that means declaring truth to power, even if that means calling out abuses of power. The gospel message the disciples proclaimed that people should repent shows that God holds all people accountable to his moral laws. And scripture is not concerned with people's rank, status. It indicts those of high and low social standing. And what we have is a desperate need in our day and age for more modern prophets, truth tellers, who will both proclaim and practice God's gospel. Second, pursuing the mission of God is costly. We may face rejection, we may find our lives on the line. Later Jesus will say in chapter eight, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. But even more than this, the message of the gospel will not be silenced. The message of the gospel will not be silenced. Even John's arrest and death seem to be a defeat at the hands of the powers of evil. But right before this, we see the the 12 messenger heralds being rising up and almost in a way taking his place in taking the life-giving message of the gospel forward. The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Well, in the next two mighty deeds that are recorded here in Mark, they go on to show that Jesus is actually more than a prophet. That's what we look forward to spending our time examining uh, next week. But suffice it to say that these three interrelated stories show, give us these instances of prophets without honor. And the bottom line is this, Christ calls us to join in God's own mission of both proclaiming and practicing the gospel, even in the face of rejection, and yes, death itself. The gospel we are to proclaim and practice centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. John 1.11 reminds us of this reality. Actually, John 1 does, but especially look back at verse 11. He came to that which is his own, but his own did not receive him. 
a picture of Jesus' rejection by his hometown crowd. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 14, every word in this verse drips with meaning. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Even as we firmly hold to the truth, we recognize that Jesus perfectly embodied grace and truth. Grace and truth. There's a wonderful little book on this paradox called The Grace and Truth Paradox by Randy Alcorn. As we carry out God's mission, let us do so with grace and truth. As we, as we parent these little ones, let us do so with grace and truth. As we engage on an, on an, an issue such as abortion, let us do so with grace and truth. May our words and actions be characterized as Jesus perfectly embodied by grace and truth. And yes, John's death would serve as a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus. The cross is the ultimate expression of grace and truth. Christ went to the cross because he would not ignore the truths of his holiness and our sin. Grace never ignores or violates truth. Grace gave what truth demanded, the ultimate sacrifice for sin. So that's a marvelous quote that Randy Alcorn includes in his, in his book, um, The Grace and Truth Paradox. But church, because of this, because of this magnificent truth that the cross is the, the ultimate expression of grace and truth, Psalm 103, 11 through 12 reminds us, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the gospel that we proclaim. This gospel surrounding Jesus, who is himself grace and truth. Because though our sins be many, his mercy is more. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word, your truth, these stories, Lord, that remind us of the rejection, the hostility that we may ourselves face for being heralds of your truth, truth tellers in the midst of this age. Oh Lord, would you show us what it means to be proclaimers and practicers of your gospel and doing so in a way that both lifts up truth and does so with grace. Father, thank you for the reminder of that for our church calling us to live out humble orthodoxy. Lord, give us the grace and strength needed to do just that. Father, would you find us faithful to the task that you have given us of carrying your great gospel to the ends of the earth so that the world might know, all people, everywhere. Lord, would you mobilize us? Would you send us out with reinforcements to do just that. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We praise the precious name of Jesus, in whose strength and in whose name we are sent out. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.